Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens and sometimes philosophical lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. (laughs) And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting. And we never know exactly how that conversation is going to (laughs) go. And that was definitely the case with this fantastic conversation, don't you think, Tim? Oh, God, it really was, Kurt. We have been waiting a long time to talk to Brian Lowry. And Brian is the Walter Kenneth Kilpatrick Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Brian is a social psychologist by training, but his work is by no means traditional in that field. Brian studies how individuals perceive inequality, and his research explores individuals' experiences of inequality and fairness in a way that sheds light on intergroup conflict and the nature of social justice. He is also a fellow podcaster as, as he is the host of Know What You See, and we encourage you to check it out if you want some high-octane social psychology. But the reason we've been wanting to talk to Brian is about his work on finding meaning in life. Did you just, did you just say meaning in life? I thought it was supposed to be meaning of life. No, no, Tim. That's a Monty Python movie from 1983 oh. <laughs> where they have that great scene of it's only way for thin. All right. But but I digress. All right. Okay. Meaning, meaning in life is what psychologists study. And it has three components, according to Brian. First, meaning in life comes from coherence, as in, are you making sense of the world? Second, uh, purpose, which is about having a purpose to your life. And the third component is significance, as in, do you feel that what you do matters? Meaning in life is what we focused on in this episode. Uh, uh, Okay, okay. I guess I'm still thinking about that scene that you mentioned from the end of the Monty Python movie where Mr. Creosote eats that one thin man after gorging himself. It's only way for thin. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, I'm going to have to have it. I have to get that out of my head. All right, back to Brian. Uh, We we had this very cool conversation about the famous study of the Asian-American women being primed with either their femaleness or their Asian-ness prior to the math exercise. Very cool stuff. And Brian framed that study very differently than the way that we or somebody like John Barge, who is an expert in priming, might frame it, Tim. The, this frame that Brian used is on the way that the you is changing depending on the context and that people's expectations about that you. I'm using air quotes for those people who can't yeah. see that when I say you. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. It is, it's it's great stuff. And we covered a wide range of topics, including the psychological perspectives on freedom. And we got to talk about our identities when it comes to music, which as you might imagine, <laughs> said a ton of dopamine to my brain. <laughs> of course it did. Of course it did. And it's probably worth letting listeners know that we did get even a little more philosophical towards the end in an already philosophically laced conversation uh, with an interesting discussion on free will. Man, that's when the synapses in my brain turned into a raging wildfire. (laughs) (laughs) It absolutely blew me away. And I hope I hope listeners will enjoy it as well. Uh, Definitely. But before we get to our conversation with Brian, 
we need to let our regular listeners know that we're going to be uh, changing things up for the next couple of weeks. We're going to be reposting a few of our favorite best of behavioral grooves episodes in the coming weeks. So in case you missed the original conversation we had with some of our favorite guests or you just want a refresher, you can check those reposts out of very cool ideas with Bob Cialdini, Dolly Chug and Shankar Vedantam. Yeah, they're terrific. So we want to let you know that we're taking a little break from new episodes because of some stuff that's going on, life-changing stuff that's happening for us right now. Mary, our research and marketing associate, is moving from the UK to Minneapolis. Yes, 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 yes. And I'm moving from Minneapolis to Charlotte, North Carolina. No, 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 boo. (laughs) All right, all right, more on that later. But for right now, we want to thank you for giving us a little hiatus from producing new episodes to allow us to get settled in our new homes. So for a few weeks in late August and early September of 2022, we'll take a break from producing new episodes in order to share some of our favorite previously published ones with you. Hmm. Mr. Tim, we're going to have to talk a little bit more about this move of yours. But for now, listeners, we invite you to sit back in a comfy chair, pour yourself of a pint of Wafer thin, meaning in brew, life, <laughs> and enjoy our conversation with Brian Lowry. Brian Lowry, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Tim, thanks for having me. It is our pleasure to have you, and we're going to get started with the speed round. So, the first major question to ask is Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Of course, coffee. Quick, nice. Quick yeah. question, quick answer. Nice. There you go. Very nicely. Done. Okay. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite musician, researcher, or athlete? Musician. For okay. sure. Oh, I love yeah. that. And yeah, you have, I have, you plenty, have plenty of dinners with researchers. I have plenty of dinners with researchers. Oh, yeah. It's like, <laughs> tired of those. Yeah. Let's have some fun. Yeah. What about musician? Any, any musician names come to mind? Oh, that's a great question. Right now, maybe Killer Mike. I think I'd, I'd have dinner with Killer Mike. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Well, when it comes to living a good life, is psychological richness more important than happiness or meaning? Uh, psychological rich richness probably produces meaning, but certainly all all of those two are more important than happiness. Happiness is overrated. Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're going to dig into that, I think, uh, as we get in here. All right. So here is a question Again, a little bit broader, a little bit, a little bit deeper here. Um, we often think of boredom as leading to pain, but boredom can also lead to creative thinking. Is it a either or? Is it a a, a both and? Where, where would you say on that that component? Both boredom leads to creativity, and maybe I don't know, maybe via pain. <laughs> Pain's not so bad. You need a little bit of pain, no. We've been actually, that's interesting. We've been talking about that a lot. And actually, we interviewed George Lowenstein uh, from Carnegie Mellon uh, about boredom. And one of the things that was really interesting in our conversation with him is he said that boredom is physically painful for him. And so it it, it drives him to do things to, to kind of, you know, avoid that pain. I thought that was a very fascinating question or, or comment when he said that. Uh, that is interesting. I, um, I don't, I don't feel bored very often. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, there's always, there's always more things to do that I want to do than time there is to do them. So I don't, I don't, I don't have (laughs) boredom as a problem too often. That's good. That's good. Well, we, we wanted to start our conversation by talking about your paper that perceiving a stable self-concept enables the experience of meaning in life. 
And so I have to just tell you that uh, you are very consistent about talking about the meaning in life. And every time I read the meaning in life, I think about Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. And I think about this. This is this might be a little silly, but can you just start by telling us why meaning in life is important, not meaning of life? Oh, I think they're both important. But so I'll start okay. with meaning in life is something that psychologists study, mm-hmm. right? So and it, it's um, there's a number of researchers who who have done incredible work in this space, and at a high level, um, they they think that three things are necessary for meaning in life. So this is something that you can like assess. And say like, all right, uh, to what extent do people report meaning in life? Like, this is this is not the same kind of philosophical question of what's the meaning of life, right? That's a very very different thing. But when psychologists talk about meaning in life, they talk about coherence. Is is life coherent for you? Do you can you make sense of the world? Purpose, like, is there a purpose to what you're doing to your life? And then significance or mattering. Does your life matter? Does what you do matter? And so the the general idea to say in the literature now is those three things together generate or constitute the sense that you have meaning in your life. So it's a that's more of a feeling, right? So you could feel like your life is meaningful and <laughs> there might be zero meaning to life, right? Mm. <laughs> the whole thing could yeah. be absurd, right? It could yeah. all be a big joke and game for all we know. But even if that's true, you could still feel like you're in the moment right now, your life feels meaningful. And how do these connect to this idea of a stable self-concept? So in this paper that I have, in the studies that I've done, what we look at is self-certainty, right? So to have that sense of coherence um, and significance and purpose, you first need to have a sense of you. Like you, there, there's, It's hard to have meaning in life if you don't feel like you know who you are, who, with that, who has meaning if it's not you. And it turns out that people vary in terms of their sense of certainty in, in who they are and that idea that that will be who they will be in the future. So that's kind of right. what we're looking at. And, then, and by the way, in the book that I'm working on, I talk about this quite a bit. And the way I talk about it there is that to have meaning in life, you need to have a sense of self. That seems, again, pretty obvious. And what a sense of self gives you is structure. It gives you a way of seeing the world, right? So Tim, you see the world in a certain way and you see that world as Tim, right? And the question is like, who is Tim? How do you know who Tim is? What is it? How does that make any sense? Like what, what holds this thing you call Tim together? And so what I, what I say there is that the self is about your relationships and interactions with other people. That's how you know who you are. And the stability in that allows you to engage with the world in a coherent, reasonable, purposeful way. And that is necessary for you to feel like your life is meaningful. I want to dig into that a little bit more because I did see uh, you give a talk kind of on this this idea that self is social. Because when we think about it, I think the general perception in the public is self is in inside of me somewhere. That there is a, you know, as you said, there's this little man up in my head telling me, you know, if I move my fingers, it's the little man up in my head moving my uh-huh. fingers. Uh-huh. But but you bring up a really good uh, kind of argument about that. There's a social that actually self is more social. Can you expand on that for our listeners? Help them understand what you mean by that. Yeah. What I mean is when you think about your life and like, let's think about something simple, like what do you like to do? What color do you like? How, where'd that come from? 
right? Is it is it, it's as if it was just like you were born and every you just sprung fully formed <laughs> from I don't know from where, but fully formed, I don't know, maybe from your mom your mother's womb or maybe from the head of Zeus, whatever it is. It's like you here you are a full human being from nowhere, right? And that's the other interesting part. It's as if you came from nowhere. Or if you're religious, you were fashioned in some other, you know, spiritual plane, and then you, your soul came into, into your body. I don't personally. That's not my view of things. So if that's not your view of things, that you were fashioned somewhere and put into this body, then you have to try, you have to answer the question then of where did you come from? Right. The you that you experience. And, and I'm simply giving an answer to that question. Where you come from is all these interactions and these relationships that you have in your life, that you have a physical body, obviously, and that there's not a, I don't want to say there's a soul separate from the body. There's no little thing in your head separate <laughs> from your body. <laughs> you have a brain in there. I hope, at least I hope everyone has a, has a brain in there. That's um, debatable with Tim, but other than that, you know, we're, we're okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair, <laughs> but, fair but enough. when you think about who you are, that's not what you're thinking about. You're not thinking about the the meat in your head, right? You're thinking about the things that you love to do and um, the people you hang out with and what all these things that you believe make you you. And what I'm saying is that those things, the things you think about when you think about who am I, those things come from relationships. They come from your parents, your partners your friends, your coworkers, in ways that you probably don't even completely understand. We live in Minneapolis, uh, not far from 38th and Chicago, where George Floyd was tragically murdered. But if you grew up, if you grow up in that neighborhood, if you live in that neighborhood, that context is going to influence your relationships, your family, their friends, right? And and these are going to contribute to your to who you think you are, right? And 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 literally who you are. Mm-hmm. I guess what I would say is that's that's true everywhere, that where you are and who you're around, they don't just, and this is the part that's maybe hardest to accept, they don't just contribute to who you are, they they create who you are. They are and another way of saying it, the most extreme way of saying it is they that those things are who you are. There's there's not a you separate from those things. Oh man. Okay, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Nor- normally we wait until the second half of the podcast to get philosophical, but man, we are just diving right into the deep end of the pool here. So so when we think about this idea of that it's not just, you know, it doesn't just form you, it is you. This that the social component of this and I think you've talked again about other aspects. When we think about that, there are differences. So if if I am thinking about it, and I, I heard you talk about the Asian American women, you know, study that, all right, when you primed people to, to kind of identify with their Asian American history and their score on a math test versus their, you know, kind of get them to think about their being a woman uh, and their, their score on a math test. And there's two different results from that. Is that what you're saying about that, that it is who we are, regardless of, of the, the way that it's imprinted on us? It is actually part of us because who we take into account from that, that aspect, who we are identifying with is going to then influence our behaviors and subsequent um, you know, actions that we do? 
Yeah, I guess I'm saying that. I, I So in that study, here's how that study is normally interpreted. So the you, you have it exactly right. So you have Asian American women, you ask them their ethnicity, you give them a math test, or you ask them about to report their gender and you give them a math test and their mm-hmm. performance changes in ways that you'd expect, right? In the way you described. And the way people normally think about that is the stereotypes associated with being Asian American are associated with positive performance in math. So you do better on math when you think in that way. Um, when you think about yourself as a woman, stereotypes are negative, you perform poorly. And I, what I'm saying is a different way to understand that is that the you is changing. It's mm-hmm. not the stereotypes associated with the you, it's the you itself that's changing. And, and what I mean by that is when you think of yourself as Asian American, what you're thinking about are the things that make you Asian American. In part, it's like how people see you, the relationships you have, those things constitute who you are in that moment. And who you are in that moment is associated with someone that does well in math, so you do better at math, right? When you think of yourself as a woman, you think of yourself as, maybe you think of yourself as uh, a girlfriend or wife or a sister, right? So you're now thinking of yourself in this way. That is a different self, right? A mother, a sister, a girlfriend, whatever, these gendered kind of parts of you are a different self, and that self doesn't do as well on math. So what I'm saying is that performance is actually in the math test really is an indication of a shift in self, right? And I think people don't really talk about it that way. I'm literally saying you're a different self in those two situations. Yeah. It it reminds me of actually your um, Stanford other uh, professor there, Aliyah Crum, who's Mm -hmm. done work on on expectations and various different things. And I'm I'm referring back to the milkshake study where she, you know, you, the expectation you have about the milkshake actually changes your body's response to that milkshake, right? So it's not that it's just, you think it's tastes different or it makes you think it's feel your body is changed by it. And it sounds to me, and again, these are vastly different areas of research and various different things, but to a certain, you're a different you. And and yeah. you're a different you if you think the milkshake is, uh, you know, rich and thick and, and thing. And you actually are a different you because your body's responding differently. So, yeah, I think that that's that's an interesting connection because uh, I think I think not so much in terms of the physical. But, yeah, there's no reason that it wouldn't affect the physical. But I think when people talk about themselves, they don't really have their body in mind. Right. No. And so what I'm doing is like, I, it sounds, it sounds, what's interesting is when I say this stuff, it sounds like really, it can sound really almost mystical or, feel, or deeply, deeply yeah. philosophical, which I get. But the weird thing about it to me is like, this is how we talk about ourselves all the time, right? We, we talk about ourselves as if we exist inside our bodies. And all I'm asking is really like, what is that thing you're talking about? You're, it's not your body. That's not the thing you're talking about. You're, you're already doing all the mystical work. I'm not creating the mysticism. Like I'm just, <laughs> I'm just accepting the mysticism that you were already describing and trying to explain it, right? Like I, you, you see what I'm saying. So when I say that, like you, the you is changing. What I'm talking about is the you that you believe right now is wearing your body like clothes. Mm. Like when you talk about you, you you feel like you are inhabiting your body. And what I'm asking you is like, what is that? Like, it's certainly not a little person inside the head. That's not, you don't think that. That's not what you mean. You mean something else. You mean something. And I'm trying to, like, explain what that something might be. Like, what are you referring to when you talk about you? What are the implications of this? What What is this? So if it's a little person in my head or it's me who I'm, <laughs> and what, so what are the implications? 
Oh, so this is, I, I love this question and I, I should be better at dealing with this question, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> That's okay. We can talk a lot. Um, so, okay. So if you accept that you are your relationships. So first of all, what that means is you are being constructed every time you interact with someone that you are being constructed some newly, like right now in this interaction, I'm constructing you all right? As we engage and you you are responding to my experience of, of you and you all are constructing me. Like I am being constructed by, by you all. So I think there is in that some humility that's required about how we understand ourselves and our lives, right? When you talk about your achievements and who you are, you then see those things as driven in large part by the people you engage with. They don't, in some sense, they are you, but the way we think about ownership of ourselves might be a little different. Certainly what would be different is, I think, the responsibility that we should feel in interactions with other people. Mm. Right. So if you are constructing someone when you interact with them, what is your responsibility in that interaction? Like we sometimes talk as if like, I have responsibility for myself and you have responsibility for yourself and we engage, everyone should be responsible for it their own part in that. If you are co-constructing each other in that moment, that doesn't really make sense anymore, right? Like, yeah. So I think that there's a degree of responsibility in it and that's generated by this way of thinking. There's a degree of humility that is um, generated by this. And I think we would think differently about um, how we interact in broader communities as well. That's fantastic. Brian, thank you for that. How can you help with a little more application when I think about intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw's work, mm -hmm. right? Bring your full self to the table. Can you put a little shape around how that works through your lens? Well, in my lens, there's a, a couple things about this. So I'll start with the simple version of identity, right? So what it means to be, in my, from my perspective, a woman or a black person or a white person or a man or any 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 other identity, right? It can be religious. It does it doesn't really matter. It is a set of expectations and and ways of behave, behaving that are labeled by a community that you exist in. By that I mean, you are a woman because other people accept you as such, and you believe you are. That's all there is from my perspective. That's what it means to be a woman. And so as you think about intersectionality, it's I think of it in the same way. Like, what does it mean to be a Black woman? Well, it, what it means is what it means to, to you and the willingness of the people around you to participate in the construction of that with you. Like, that's, that's what it, it means to have an identity. So to bring your whole self. So this is, <laughs> I've talked about, I've talked about this in other places. I, I think that reflects a misunderstanding of self. Hmm. I think the misunderstanding is driven by a certain belief in authenticity that I, I kind of reject um, because authenticity assumes that there's some stable you that exists out there independent of the situation. And then the question is, are you willing to be that authentic self across situations? Where what I'm saying is who you are is shifting from situation to situation like that. If you want to say, if you want to talk about authenticity, then you're, you can be authentically you and be different yous in situation from situation. 
like yeah. the way I would walk into a, a, a sporting stadium and be yelling and screaming compared to walking into a library and I'd be quiet and more reserved. Yeah. And those are both you completely and both authentic. Yeah. Right? I just think authenticity assumes the stability in self that I, that I don't. Yeah. With that, I think people, when they, when they have that concept of authenticity is that they understand, all right, yeah, I'm going to act different in a library than I'm going to act in a sports stadium versus a bar versus a, you know, a Rauch's bar versus a fancy restaurant with my kids versus with my friends at work versus at home. But that there is at some core piece that there is a some moral foundation about who we are that is unchanging. And what I'm hearing you say is even then that isn't necessarily the case, that there is, it is fully based upon the context within which we find ourselves. And that am, am I miss? No, that's completely right. Okay. No, 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 that's right. I mean, so I have to be careful here because I don't deny the, just to be clear, I don't deny that you have a body. <laughs> I want to be, <laughs> okay. like, I just, there are bodies. Like, I just want to be clear about right. that. And, yeah. and yeah. I also believe that people, that bodies have central tendencies. Like, I don't deny the influence of genetics. So I, I want to be, I'm not saying these things don't matter, but I'm saying that mostly when we think about ourselves, that's not really what we have in mind. Mm. Right. What we're talking about is something else. So what what I'm talking about the you is the how those things show up and how they're understood, like how you behave and how that behavior is translated into your understanding of who you are for you and for other people. That makes sense. So, yes, to you, I, again, I just want to reiterate your point. I, I don't think there's some core true you in there that is expressed or not expressed. I don't, that's not. That's not my my view. It's not like a like a, a a wheel with a hub, and the hub never changes. But all the spokes you might be getting different. It's it's not it's it's not that analogy. Is that that's correct? correct. That is not that's not my analogy. This is this is why I, this uh, this sounds weird. This is why I have to make the point about the body. Like yeah yeah yeah. yeah. There's a physical thing, but that's not what we're talking yeah. about. So let's keep keep clear the distinction. What I'm saying is, as you think about you you have the wrong metaphor. Most people have the wrong metaphor. They think in terms of like, yeah, there's a core me and then there are things that spin off of that core. But there's really at heart, there's a core me. And I'm saying like, no, that is not true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I just got to say, it's kind of mind blowing. It really is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different way of thinking about ourselves, but there are implications of that, right? There are implications about the idea of the justice system about, you know, our, who we are in a marriage as a, who we are as an employee or an employer, the implications go kind of deep when you think about it this way is that, as you said before, it's this constructing, we are co-constructing ourselves. And so in those situations, there's going to be a fair amount of elements that if we thought that we had a core component is now it's cope being developed and there are the factors that come into play about who we are surrounding ourselves, but also the society that we, we find ourselves within that community as Tim talked about earlier, even if it's a, a local small couple block radius or a city or a state, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, again, yeah. is that, is that true? Yeah, that is completely true. I mean, I think there are interesting implications for, responsibility, right? That's implied mm -hmm. in some of the examples you gave. 
There's also, and in the book I talk about this um, extensively, there are also really interesting implications for the idea of freedom. And so what I say in the book, and this is really the heart of the book that I'm working on, which is, by the way, the title is going to be Selfless. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So oh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but there's, a, there's really a, a deep tension between the idea of self, meaning like you, your sense of you, and your desire to feel like you have freedom. And so mm-hmm. what, is that, what does that tension look like? Well, when you think about who you are, like you are basically drawing boundaries around yourself. That, that I mean, the, not around. I mean, you're creating the self by producing boundaries, right? That is the self is what's in those boundaries from your perspective. From my perspective, it still is limiting in that the self is being constructed by relationships. So it's limiting what you can be by engaging in relationships. So this, that sounds maybe a bit esoteric. I'll say it differently. If you have a romantic partner, like being in that relationship means that you can't do some things and be some other things. Like that, that is the nature of all relationships, right? But being in that relationship also, if you're a husband or wife, be, being in the relationship makes you a husband and a wife, or a wife, right? You're not a husband and a wife that happens to be in the relationship, right? The relationship is what makes you a husband or a wife. And in making you that, it gives you a way of engaging with the world, right? Now you can go out into the world as a husband and that is changes how you people engage with you and you engage with the world. And in doing that, it's limited your freedom. So it's both the relationship has constructed you as a husband or wife, and in constructing you as a husband or wife, it's limited what you can do or be. So, and there's that tension, right? So if you want freedom, it's going to be hard to be in a marriage. <laughs> right. right. But if you but you also benefit from having a better sense of who you are because you're in the marriage. And what I'm saying is now extend that to every relationship you have. Like play that out for all of your relationships, right? To have a self is to be in a, a, a huge set of relationships that define you. But in defining you, they also limit what you can be and limit your freedom. And those relationships are in part defined by societal norms, right? Uh, cultural contexts, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. neighborhoods, uh-huh. right? Yep. And this is the larger, and this is the, again, I get into the, this in the book quite a bit that some of the most powerful forces are things that we don't pay much attention to. Mm-hmm. Like the, the environment around us shapes what kind of relationships are even acceptable that you can even conceive of, right? And in doing that, they shape what you can be. Right, that and people, it's it's easy to miss that, right? What it would have been to be you, let's say you were born as you, ten, you know, let's call it two thousand years ago. Like there'd be relationships that just would not be available to you. There'd be identities, ways you think about yourself that just would not exist, right? You could be the same physical being, but you could not be you. It's not. It would not be possible to be the you you are now then. Right. That's the, and that's a, that's You're another way of understanding what I mean about hard. you. <laughs> You're making me think way too hard on, on a Friday. Oh my gosh. No, this, I, and I'm, I, I'm saying that actually in a wonderful way. Cause I, I, I do, you know, again, I'm saying I do, and I'm being constructed here as we're, as we're thinking about this, but there is this element of, of, yeah. of insight that we get from this. It, it, it brings up the question and, the, and, you know, these hypothetical questions that you could have is, all right, so 
a hermit has a whole different world perspective and identity. Obviously, we, we as humans, we can't survive without some um, interaction at a young age. But say, you know, after a certain age, you go and live in a cave by yourself. Yourself was still constructed from this perspective by those early interactions. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I also, I and I, I should do more research on this, but I just don't buy the hermit thing. Like, I get people, like, bring that up. Like, I get it. I, I get the idea. But, you know, right now, it's considered cruel and unusual punishment to put someone in um, isolation. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah, right. Because people, people break down mentally in isolation. Like, you literally will... I would argue like you lose your sense of self, like you disintegrate mentally in isolation. So are there, is it possible for someone to live for an extended period of time alone? Sure. I mean, I, I wouldn't deny this. It's not like you would drop dead after like, you know, a, a year by yourself. I don't, that's not what I assume, but I, I do think you would, the you that we've been discussing would eventually start to disintegrate. And I think yeah. that it would be hard for it'd be hard for you to maintain. Well, I think it'd be almost impossible over an extended period of time to maintain a sense of self. And and I think on, on this again, I think the evidence of the physical impact of isolation and even loneliness, which is not isolation but a, a sense of isolation, the effect of that on physical health to me is really compelling. Uh, so I, I think the idea that we can live alone, that we exist as islands, is just clearly false. And I, it's interesting because I, I I would agree with you. I think that there is a a big myth out there, particularly this American myth of the lone cowboy out on the range, and they they were out there, you know, living the that you know the grizzly um, Adams in in a cabin out in the woods. And and the fact of the matter is, is all right. I'm a cowboy, but I come back to the campfire every night. And, you know, there's a community there. There's a group of people. Grizzly Adams still has neighbors and different pieces that they see. And there's this myth of, like, we're lone rangers, and we're not. We are very much social creatures. And those so that social creature, I think, to your, your point, is that without that, that self starts to disintegrate. And I think I I would even go so far, and again, I don't have the research to really point this, but I think there's pain that comes with social isolation. And that is a, a key piece of, we, we don't do that. The hermits are rare breeds and probably something is, is different with them as opposed to, you know, the reality of the world. So, yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, also, like just the myth of individual, of like, you know, rugged individualism is, is, is so honestly just, crazy i don't even think about it like i mean i, I get it. it's maybe useful in some ways but that people can can live in the world they live in and, and have believe that to be true is amazing to me i mean look human beings evolved as social creatures like and i, I tell students sometimes when i teach like we are soft and weak like we would not <laughs> last very long and by ourselves in in the wild right and i mean that not just us you know who are sitting in these chairs talking on microphones but any human being compared to the like what's out there we are soft and weak um and then what i also point out is like any modern and it's not to say modern let's even go back thousands of years modern person can can almost well cannot live without 
at least hundreds of people helping them produce the things that they they exist with like right now if you know we i can see you all because we're on camera but there's basically nothing in any of our views that any one person can produce like zero right and you think about and the economists talk often about a pencil like to make a pencil think about how many thousands of people go into getting a pencil to to you to use right mm -hmm. there's the wood there's the who's the chemical composition of the paint there's the mining for the little metal thing right there's the extraction of that and smelting of that and shaping of that there's the graphite there's the eraser there's the the compl complications of shipping all of those materials the raw materials the finished materials to then right. be put together and then the, i mean all these things it's just so incredibly complex the social worlds that we exist in and it just seems incredible that people can hold on to this myth of individuality like not individuality rather like rugged individualism right that that you yeah. could make it somehow on your own that you're responsible for all your outcomes somehow by dint of your intelligence and hard work alone. Like this, it just seems insane. Well, it's not to say that we don't have agency. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. well, uh, this is this. <laughs> oh, now, now we're going to go, okay. we're going to go deep. Okay. We'll go deep. Oh, okay. I know. Now I'm going to, this is the really, I'll be careful here. What I will say is no, this, no. what I'll yeah, say this is, is this. I think that free will as most people understand it is incoherent and they probably don't even want it. Yeah. So that's not to say that that's the, that's the one to be careful. The reason I want to be careful is that's not the same as saying people don't have agency. Like, I just want to be clear. But the way that people understand free will, I believe, and people disagree, right? There's many, many books and, and many, many hundreds of years of philosophy on this. But my sense, um, and, and a lot of philosophers would agree with this, not all, that that way that people think about free will, the lay understanding of it just doesn't really make sense. And yeah. and more important, I think this is where the people who would say we do have free will, what they mean, and often, not always, but often is that um, what you should want, what you probably actually want, you can have. What you describe as wanting probably doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> and so I can say more about that. Like, let's say one more. Okay, so imagine you want to go buy a car, that. right? You're going to go buy a new car, right? And there's choices to be made. You don't want to just go in and buy that car without being influenced. Like right. you, you just want influence to be ones that are in your mind. If you understood them, you would agree with or find useful or be aligned with what you believe is is good, whatever that means, right? So it's not that you want to just go and I don't even know what it, this is the part of the problem. I don't even know what it means. Freely decide if what you mean by freely is be uninfluenced by people or by yeah. other things, right? Like you can't mean that. What you mean is you want to make what you would think of as a good decision, right? You want to choose the right thing for you. What Again, whatever that means. And you do choose. So if what you mean by agency, did you choose? Like you went and you bought a car. Sure, if that, if, and I think that's often what people might just, you did that. Did you do that freely? Like if you had to, if you, everything were the same and you went back, could you choose to pick a different car? Like I'm, that question doesn't even make sense. <laughs> If That's what I mean. Your life led, you know, to this. I, I'm wondering, and and you may or may not um, uh, have done. This. Robert Sapolsky, another colleague of yours, is writing mm -hmm. a book on free will right now. I, I I just heard him talk a little bit about it, and I think he's taking a more biological uh, approach, obviously, with his background in there. But 
if you had any conversations uh you I know talked to him about it I'm, it's, it's interesting like i would have not have guessed that for his next book but i've not talked to him about that <laughs> i mean i know it's an interesting piece right but uh, and again to your point i mean when i think about this i think about this idea that again if everything leading up to that decision to buy the car that you made was exactly the same could you at that moment of the decision to buy that car make any other different decision because of all the influences that have been on you and different things. And if that's what you think of free will, then I think it's probably to your point, it's kind of a misnomer, right? Because, you know, yeah. It can't exist, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense. So it's the example that is often given is like, there's pie and cake, right? Mm -hmm. You go and choose the cake. And then if everything else was the same, could you have chosen the pie? And it's like, what does it mean, right? Because if it was, you can randomly, like you could say, okay, people randomly choose, but nobody would accept randomness as free will. Yeah. Right. And and if you believe that the world is deterministic, like I don't know how else you would get to a different decision, right? Something else would have changed. And that, given that, I think that's not what people, I think that's what people kind of describe if you ask them, but that's not even what they, more importantly, I think that's what they want. Yeah. What they want is to have the chosen, like the thing they should have chosen, whatever that means to them, right? I chose that's cake because I than like, and I choose yeah. freely. That's not, I mean, it depends on what, so this is where it gets like some of these conversations about free will are really conversations about the definition of free will. Yeah, right. I would agree. And, and it gets uh, again to that esoteric, you know, at, at that moment, I, I, I savored the, you know, the chocolate cake that was more desirable to me in that moment than the pie. And so, yes, I want to be able to choose that cake because of that reason. And so, yeah. I would love to take your class, not at 8 a.m., but <laughs> <laughs> um, I, if, if it's all right with you, could we could we talk a little bit about, about music? Let's do it. So before we get into some of the really juicy stuff, I'm curious, you're writing this book. Do you listen to music while you work? I do. You know, it's funny. Like I, I here, I'll, I'll show you. They, the audience won't see it, but you will. So I'm at my desk. This isn't the rest of my books, but then there's a, a I have a record player right there. Oh my and gosh, I, yeah. And I you to, have a turntable yeah, wow, with, to, with a uh, brush, yeah, no less. Yeah. So wow. I, I, uh, and I have these, these are these headphones, the ones I'm wearing right now for this. I, yeah. I plug these in and play records at vinyl while I work. And a pretty fat looking, uh, I think that's an AT4050 microphone that you're using right there, uh-huh. just uh, <laughs> being a little bit of a dorky thing. <laughs> yep, but, yep. I mean, pretty <laughs> handsome looking microphone in front of you. Just saying. Hey, but, okay, look, so I'm, just, I'm gonna now I'm gonna plug my podcast. We do high quality stuff. Yes. At know, know what you see. <laughs> yes. So know what the, you see. Check podcast. it out. Like the, I think by the way, the podcast is usually not this esoteric. <laughs> I didn't want to ask my that question. Go, is, so what do you talk about on your podcast? Because this could be like a really this would be one of those. I need a glass of wine and and uh, you know sitting back and listening to this. So tell us about a little bit about the podcast before we go into music. The podcast really is um, really I'm just curious about a lot of things, right? So it is an exploration of interesting issues of the day. So. The first season was on race and power. So after mm-hmm. the George, George Floyd murder, we did um, a 10-episode series on that. And this, the current season, the one that's going right now, is about um, reimagining work. Like, how, how is work changing and how might it evolve? Um, and again, it's really me talking to, like, really interesting guests about 
the, these topics and um, me trying to make sense of these things. So you, you've, you've heard me talk here. So it's just my, it's kind of like my, uh, my perspective and lens on trying to make sense of the world. Right. But <laughs> yeah. you know, it's mostly not the self I'll just say, but it's some of that in there, but it's mostly like trying to understand other people's views. So I get to do what you guys are doing to me and, and, and pick <laughs> oh, well, we're not doing it to you. <laughs> this is co-creation, Brian. We are, we are yeah. working together on this. Okay, fair, fair. You got me. What we're doing with each other. How about <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I'm curious about what role does music play in the identity of self? Oh, you know, actually, I, I, there, I think that people, some people have identities around around music, right? And so... And you can have communities around music and people can be more or less accepted into those communities. I mean, they're not the same as, say, religious communities, or I guess they can be, but frequently they're a little bit more diffuse than that. But, I, you know, I, I think, for example, if you listen to jazz, there's a certain assumption around the kind of person that listens to jazz. And when you engage with people, they have a views of who you are and you accept those views as a part of who you are and you engage with other people who listen to jazz and pop, you know, this is, you know, I think music is, um, well, one, I find it to be a huge effect on my mood. So depending on the mood I want to get in, I, I listen to different things. I, it's I changed, the prime. I changed myself. I changed myself. I'm like, I'm going to be that, that <laughs> other guy. <laughs> but it's also a, a, an incredible way to connect with people, which means there's, you know, a, a, a part of identity around music that's, that's important, I think, for people. Yeah. Do you have identities around music, Kurt? <sighs> so I have much less of an identity than Tim. Tim is the musician no, of, of the duo here. But I, I mean, I love music. I, I enjoy music. Tim is a aficionado of music. And he, like as he said, he can talk about the microphone in front of you <laughs> and probably you know give you a, a a whole dissertation on the on the turntable that you're using, as well as a, a variety of other genres and and the various different things. And so for for Tim, I would, as an outsider looking at Tim and co-creating his world with him at this point, music has a definite identity piece for him. So, yeah. Uh-huh. And what's your identity around music, Tim? I'm curious now. <sighs> well, you talk about relationship. You talk about connectedness. And that has uh, long, that's been uh, deeply associated with my connectivity to music. Uh, that as a child, my introverted self found a way of connecting with people by playing. Like being having an instrument in front of me was a way to connect with other people where I actually felt like I wasn't revealing myself, mm-hmm. which was a big fat myth. <laughs> you know, of course, everything that I sang and played was a you know was was me. And but, what do you play? Uh, what instrument do you play? I'm going to guess. Is it a horn? No, no, I'm I'm a, gu- a guitar is my guitar. primary instrument. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up with a wide variety of stuff, but I gravitated toward uh, acoustic guitar with more folk rock. Okay, type, nice type stuff, nice. and I nice. played played some jazz. Got it. Well, you talked about house on a recent mm-hmm. episode, mm-hmm. and I, you know, it's so funny. There was a comment that your guest made about you know house can be anything, and I think like I connected the house with with like this wide variety of everything from George Clinton and parliament to Bootsy Collins to delight, you know, Mm -hmm. this vast wide array of what house music can be. And, and and so when I think about connectedness, I like the looseness of music. I like the flexibility that there may be a, a stereotype that we might associate with a jazz listener, but there could also be, and anybody can be a jazz listener. 
you know, anybody can, can pick it up and go, man, that Charlie Parker, he just sends my soul, you know? I want I I love that about music in a, with its universality. Do you, am I just riffing off of total no, no, ridiculousness I think that's true. here? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, it's interesting is like anyone can listen to any genre of music, but there's still what's what I find somewhat I don't know if this is good or bad, it just is. There are people who form communities and then but there it means something to be a part of that community of like in a genre. So I think of it as like you can play basketball or you can be a basketball player. Those are not mm. the same thing necessarily, <laughs> right? So yeah. You can listen to all kinds yeah. of music, but that doesn't make you like, you, I mean, you don't have to necessarily be an aficionado, but there's a point where you become like, I am a part of this, whatever, rock and roll, country and Western, rap, right? Whatever yeah. genre, like I participate in that. And it's not just I listen to the music, but there's something more. And it, I find like hip hop is very explicit in this, right? It's like hip hop culture. It's not just like, that's you right. Listen to like, have you learned, listened to rap? That's not what they're talking about, right? And I think most genres have a version of that. I mean, you go from, you know, heavy metal and, and that you, all right, I mentioned heavy metal and I can, you probably have a, a picture in your head about what that person dresses like, what their hairstyle is, you know, all sorts of things. And, and again, same thing for a classical, you know, somebody who listens to classical music. So yes, I agree that you can listen to those, but if you're not a, a metalhead, you're, you, you know, you're not dressing black with the, you know, Metallica t-shirt and you're, you know, uh, long raincoat and whatever else you wear. I, I don't know. Those are, again, the the stereotypes that come to my mind when I think of that. Yeah, so. I agree. It's like participating in the community. That's kind of yeah. like there's listening to music and then there's the communities that form around the music, right? Yeah. And like, are you, so there's a difference between, yeah, just listening to that music and being in that community. Yeah. And it's interesting, again, going back to your identity about self and, and while that's formed is I know a number of, of people who are high, um, they're, they're high level executives within organizations. And then on the weekend, and, and they're dressed in suits and ties and they look really, you know, professional and formal. And then on the weekend, they're going to, you know, the corn concert and they have a whole different <laughs> wardrobe that they're wearing and they present oh themselves God. in a very different way. Same thing like, you know, they ride a Harley and they they have a different, you know, persona around that. And again, it's I think it's really fascinating when you take what you talked about earlier in the identity of self and how that parlays itself into music and other kind of communities that we we build ourselves into. Yeah, I think I, yeah, I agree with that. I think this also gets back to the kind of the question of authenticity, like the conversation we had there, right? So I, I'll step outside of music for just a bit. I knew a, a CEO who, um, a founder of a company, or maybe can't, I can't remember if he founded or came in later, but anyway, he was definitely the CEO and he served. He was like, I think mm -hmm. he identified as a surfer. But for a while, he would come into work super early after surfing and like change before anybody else got there, put on the suit, take off the things that would identify him as a surfer because he didn't want that to be how people saw him at, at the job, right? And so there, that I think maybe another way to think about inauthenticity is that there he had a fear about how one community or identity would engage with another of his identities, right? And, and there's, I think they're actively trying to conceal one part of how you see yourself and engage with other people can be seen as 
inauthentic. I think that's maybe another way that people think about it. But still, it's not like the, the deep inner self. It's just, I think of that as the trying to avoid conflict between relationships. We could go on for the next nine <laughs> hours on this, Brian. It has been such a treat to get to meet you and to talk to you here on Behavioral Groups. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you both. Oh, appreciate it. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Brian, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our meaning in life brains. Ah, uh, meaning in life, not meaning of life, meaning in life. Yes. It's not way for thin. It's not the way for thin there, Tim. It, it is, is, it it is, is a meaning in life. Okay, I'm, I'm going to just lay this out on the line. This was a deep philosophical this this was like a, a philosophy course in college not and not just 101 <laughs> level this was like philosophy phd level and i am still in intro to philosophy in uh in high school so man it blew my head and i'm just saying I am still tingly just thinking about how cool that conversation was. I just oh adored God. it. This is like me having to go and understand the math that is in research papers where they're using those Greek letters <laughs> in the things. And I can't put my wrap my head around it until I like sit down there. Oh, my God. I My brain was hurting. It was hurting. And for me, this is like sitting on in the hot tub on a cold night with uh, with an ice cold bottle of champagne. That's <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let you do all the grooving then because I'm still wrapping my head around this and it hurts. It's it's like blood out of the ears hurts. I mean, that's. Uh... But it. So this poses this because it's so philosophical. This brings up some really interesting aspects about the human condition that are not just evidence research based. Yeah. Right. So so this grooving session, listeners, is not really about this is what we know about this or this isn't, you know, confirmation bias on this. And it's the loss aversion on that. And, you know, this is. <laughs> oh, this is confirmation bias. Oh, <laughs> this is confirmation bias for sure. <laughs> but this is this is about let's let's just let's just jump right into it. Is the self contextual or not? Is there a core self? I just want, I'm just going to ask you, do you think there is a core self that is unchanging, unflinching, never wavering? Okay, so no, the, 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 the unflinching, unwavering piece that you bring up, I don't think so. I think that core, that authentic self, as Brian talked about, this idea that uh, this is the part where I might have some, it may just me being wishfully thinking about this, but I, I do think I have a difference in opinion than Brian here. When Brian talks about that, you know, and I'll quote here, because authenticity assumes that there is some stable you that exists out there independent of the situation. And then the question is, are you willing to let that authentic self across situations? And what I'm saying, again, this is a quote from Brian, is who you are is shifting from situation to situation. And for me, I don't know, there's something about that idea that the you that you are is changing. I think how that you of you shows up and how that you of you is expressed and the way that that appears is different. And this goes back to, you know, kind of, and again, I don't, I, I, 
what I do isn't research, but it's studying this idea about self-identity and self-schemas. And the, mm -hmm. the, the concept that, as I understand it, is, you know, we have a self-identity, which is this overarching piece, uh, but the self-schemas that we have are how we show up in a contextual situation. So what Brian is talking about in my, in the way that I view this, is this idea that we, uh, is the self-schema. That, yeah, given that I am in a room, uh, I'm a white male, 55 years old, and showing up in Minneapolis in a room, uh, in a dinner place, I will show up in one way versus if I am me again, white male, 55, but I'm in uh, Africa and I'm having a dinner there, I show up in a, in a different way. I have different expectations about what is expected of me and how I need to, to show up in various different pieces. So, so context is influencing some of this, right? Yeah, but, but that me, there's a core part that there's some, there's some consistency across those. Same way, if you and I go to the same restaurant, same night, same different things, we're going to show up in different ways. And same thing if you right. go to Africa and, and we're in the same restaurant, same thing, you're going to show up in different ways. But there's a thread. There's a thread through that, the way that we show up. Each of us individually. Not Each of us individually. And, and I think that thread is that authentic self-identity core self. Now, and that may be wishful thinking of me. And I said you were going to lead this this grooving session, and I just <laughs> talked for two minutes there. I apologize. I, uh, Which, again, is is one of our threads, it's right? It's one of our it's, threads. That's right. You, <laughs> you, you show up with more words. Let me start by saying there is a lot about this topic that I don't know. I, I, I'm saying here. I'm right. I'm I'm tipping my toes over the edge of the precipice of I have no idea what I'm talking about. So I just, just, just <laughs> which is how we we show up in every single one of these episodes. <laughs> too. So maybe that's a consistent thread for me. <laughs> However, Brian made a compelling argument to me that jogged my thinking about this this idea that that they're might not be anything more than DNA as the consistent part of us, mm -hmm. but even that is still culturally and contextually influenced. Yeah. And so it, it, it once it prods me to think about doing more research on uh, more study, excuse me, not research, but, but to study more about like twins, like they, there have been studies where they've taken tr uh, twins um, at birth, uh, put them in and not in, you know, intentionally masochistically or <laughs> manipulatively, but they've ended up in different situations and then they study their lives. And my question is, is there some similarity in who they are, how they identify themselves that is similar, even though they've grown up in different contexts? Yeah. And I will, I'll take a little bit of different path from the consistency part, because I don't know how consistent I am across my life. This is the part where I don't think it's like you're born with a, with a you and that you is the same you that you die. Okay. But that you is shifting and changing the history. Every experience we have shapes that you. It, and again, I, I am exactly like you. As I said, I am in 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 you know intro to to psych or to you know philosophy. Uh, philosophy. <laughs> you know, I'm not even philosophy 101. So when we think about this, but in in the way that I kind of put this into a a framework is this idea that all of our experiences, all of the ways that we show up 
influence who that you is and that you is shifting. And so to that degree, I might well, agree with Brian that every situation you're showing up as a new you. But that's the similar thing to saying, you know, you can't step into the same river twice. And yet that river has, has boundaries, you know, but those boundaries shift over years and years and years. I, I, there's a little bit of circular argument going on here. There's a little bit of it's the same river, but but it's but it's not the same river because it's shifting, but it has boundaries. But it, I mean, this is tough. This is a really challenging aspect. Uh, and of this I, whole I, thing. I agree that. But I mean, if I look at a map, I can find where that river is. Right. And. I can do that. If I look at a map in 200 years from now, that river might have shifted. Yes. Right? But you would so, still call it that river. You would still call it that river. The Mississippi River, if you look back over history, that's courses changed over time. But that river is pretty consistent now in different pieces. And that's – maybe that's a bad analogy. But I don't that, know. That but is it's something, it's yeah. an interesting analogy. And I don't know how far we could pull that string. But – I think that it's fascinating. I guess that that's the that's the part that I find so great is that this gets me to a question about my musicianship. All this right. gets this gets me to a question and, and to put it in your terms, are you a basketball player or do you play basketball? I do neither. Am I okay? <laughs> am I a am I a musician or do I just play music? Right? Yeah. And and what is the psychological philosophical difference between how do we define ourselves? Do I define myself as a musician? What does it mean to define myself as a musician versus someone who just plays music, right? And I say just, I'm being, I'm biasing the, the conversation right there. Right. And this idea of, of how we think about ourselves. So does that change based on the context that you're in? So if you consider yourself as a musician, does that change if yeah. you're talking with me or if you're talking with your musician friends, if you're on a stage or if you're practicing in your in your basement or th those are the things where, again, it's it, so tough, the, right? So, yeah. So the context in which I show up as a musician, if I'm on stage and there's an audience, we're assuming that I would be playing in front of people and not being on a stage with no one in the audience, by the way. But if, if there are if there's an audience, I'm showing up differently than when I'm another audience situation giving a presentation at work, you know, for a client. If I'm giving, yeah, a you, of course you show up differently. Those are I mean, those, that's, those are different contexts, right? Well, yeah, I, I am not going to right. show up at the library the same way I show up at a rock concert. We know right. that, right? So, right? so context matters at this at the core of it. And okay, so this also leads into Brian's surfer CEO story. Yeah of uh, when he talked about concealing a part of himself. He talked about the does, the, does the CEO who is also a surfer, because he's taking off his surfer gear before he goes to the office, concealing that part of him. Am I concealing the part of me that's a musician when I'm making a presentation to a bunch of business leaders? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> This is this is why this, this, is, this is why my ears this is why my ears bleed. Um, this is, but the the idea and, and conceal I think is also it's like do, it's does it just word. not come up? Do, does this idea that 
it, I, I, I'm not concealing it. I just don't need to wear my surfer clothes to do my CEO job. It's not the expectation that yeah. is there. And there's some social aspects of that. So I don't know, concealing, I don't, do you conceal anything? I mean, do you conceal your musicianship when you're working? I don't, conceal feels like a, a, a hard-edged word that there's yeah. this intentional, almost almost deceptive, yeah. right? There's something verging on deceptive with the idea of conceal. And I don't think that I conceal it. At the same time, I don't see a reason to bring it up yeah. with, you know, in most situations. Do you, do yeah. you have a, do you conceal? Are you well, concealing well, part of you? My, my heroin, um, you know, <laughs> habit, but outside of the heroin habit, it, no, I mean, uh, to, to, uh, no. Sorry, no, I don't you're, have a, people, joking. I don't have a heroin habit. No. It's just an occasional use. It really you're isn't not, that you're habit. Not even, no. <laughs> you're not even an occasional user. Stop that. Um, so no, that this idea that we, you know, I show up differently with my kids than I show up at work, than I show up in this. Mm -hmm. And and because of that, does that make I'm a different you in those situations? And I, you know, am I concealing? Am I trying actively to hide that? I don't think so. It just isn't what I feel is is appropriate or necessary in those situations. Or relevant. So, or relevant. Kind of yeah. I, I One of the things, and just I'm, I'm, I'm jumping back. One of the things that Brian said that I do agree with is that, is that we're all co-creating the experience and the use as they show up. So the self-schema that we have is being co-created by the people and the expectations around us. Yeah. So the way that I show up in a library is being co-created because of the expectations around that library that we have, right? And a library in a different cultural setting might have very different expectations right. about it. And so... That piece I really agree with. And anyway, it, it I think we've probably run this to its end. What do you think? Yeah, well, well, one thing we could agree on, let me just say two other things. One is that the, when Brian talks about the myth of individualism, you know, that way, life is way too complex to have this homo economicus kind of thing that we're, we have total agency in every decision we make and all that stuff, right? That's easy. Yeah, uh, easy, easy. And this idea that, you know, we are the, we've made ourselves who we are by ourselves is a, it's a fallacy, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, and particularly that, for, you know, the, there's certain groups of individuals, mostly white male who are out there and have successful businesses and said, it's because of my hard work and everything. And you're going, yeah, that, that's part of it, but sure. it is also a number of other factors. And, and you are part of a collective community and you have to understand that that collective community yeah, is impacting your ability to succeed or not succeed or other factors that come into this. Yeah, so the, yes. The attribution error is, is, well documented and well studied and well researched. So we so, brought in a psychological concept. This is awesome. Very good. Uh, and, Way to go, the, Tim. And the last thing, I feel like this conversation teed up again for me. It's prodding me to feel like I want to do more study in uh, free will, which we didn't, which we didn't get to. But that's a that's a big deal that I don't know a lot about. Uh, and then, of course, the self. I'm really curious about that. So this was a great conversation for me to to give those, uh, you know, to to kind of give those things some more thought. I, well, I think it's interesting because free will has come up in a couple different conversations we've had now with different yeah. different interviews, and so 
with yeah, very different perspectives. So I think we need to uh, dive deeper. Free will is we have it and we don't have it. Oh my gosh, what is it? Ah, that's crazy. All right, all right. With that, let's let's stop this philosophical <laughs> wafer thinning of stuff before we explode. And uh, let's wrap that up for this grooving session with our conversation with Brian. That's uh, that's a good wrap. Okay. Just a quick reminder to listeners that we are taking a few weeks off in the coming months to settle our lives a little bit in uh, new homes. Mary's coming to Minneapolis. I'm moving to Charlotte. Just quick reminder there. Well, okay. So, so will that be the me that still loves behavioral grooves or will that be some other me <laughs> as you are moving there? <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right. It's whatever, if it's the core me or whatever it is, if it's the contextual me, it is the me that loves behavioral groups. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to hear. All right, folks, we hope you enjoyed our graduate level philosophy discussion with Brian uh, and that this week it helps you go out and find your group.